How did your style uh, begin? How did it begin? Well, I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't Neither know, Johnny. do I, really. It's just one of those things that happened, you know, Johnny. I'm in the far off distant lands. Is it? Mm. It's a uh, Depends. Sometimes we get a lot of letters. Sometimes we get hardly any. About a thousand. Yeah. All, all over the place. Yeah, we, we get. Do you have a secretary to reply to letters? Yeah, we have a, yeah. a few. Yeah. We need them. Oh, yeah. um, uh, invent this way of uh, putting your jackets and stuff. Uh, we got it from Paris, Pierre Cardin. Mm -hmm. Yes, Cardin. Yes. And uh, <laughs> is, is <laughs> always, uh, the idea is yours or somebody else? No, Pierre Cardin in Paris. His original. As I said. Oh, yes. but, uh, groups, groups didn't um, used to have this sort of jacket. They used to wear ordinary suits. More like this. <laughs> more like that. <laughs> but uh, we adopted this fashion, which is like a French fashion. From oh, whom? Pierre, Pierre Cardin. Cardin. <laughs> Welcome to this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. And let's see, when you're getting this, it will be the week of the 9th of October. It will be John Lennon's 83rd birthday. So we did what everybody does. We went and asked ChatGBT, what should we talk about for John Lennon's birthday? And he told us that he should that we should talk about music and fashion and John's both influencer status before there was such a thing and his iconoclasm. Sounds like a great topic. And we have the perfect person. We are being joined by the author of what is currently the number one Beatles book on Amazon, Deirdre Kelly. Title of the book is Fashioning the Beatles, The Looks That Shook the World. Hi there. First off, like we always do, we want to get a little bit of news out of the way. A 30-minute interview with Ringo with the AP came out this week. And, well, Ringo admitted that he thought that now and then would have been out by now. Apparently, Apple is not staying in contact with Ringo. <laughs> well, is it Apple or is it Universal? I mean, what some people are thinking is maybe they decided to just wait and join in with the Stones release. Strange. So it's one way to get some publicity. Right. And now the Beatles need all the publicity they can get. <laughs> Nobody wants to go see these 80-year-old guys. Of course, the Stones are also 80-year-old guys. <laughs> the world apparently is in their 80s. <laughs> one of the things beyond what Ringo chatted about it's a really good interview he talks about a number of different things including his forthcoming EPs and his work with T-Bone Burnett and incidentally T-Bone Burnett joined him 
at the Ryman Auditorium when Ringo played there just in the last uh, couple weeks. That's cool. I'd like to see T-Bone Burnett myself with Ringo. Lots of country fun. But one thing which particularly caught my eye is the outfit that Ringo's wearing. You know, he's got this green sort of tie-dye thing, and it's like, wow, that's really kind of different. Hmm. Deirdre, tell us a little bit about what you think of this outfit that Ringo had on. Thank you for asking me. I'd love to pontificate on what I think Ringo is wearing. First of all, <laughs> it's absolutely eye-popping, which is true to Ringo. His style has always been very colorful, very adventurous, very him. And when I looked at it kind of closely, I could see that it is, to my eye, a classic Levi's trucker jacket that has been tie-dyed. And I believe Levi's has put out tie-dye denim jackets. They are considered vintage items. They're out there, I think, for sale. And I think it's fantastic that Ringo is wearing this in the present day into his 80s, but also it ties into the Beatles and their relationship with denim. It goes right back to their days in Liverpool. Incidentally, does Stella run in your circles or do you run in Stella's circles? Just curious. (laughs) Well, we don't run in each other's circles, but actually, I'd say we know of each other. Of course, I know of her, but what I mean, we know of each other, she actually knows of me. I am a former newspaper journalist on staff at Canada's The Globe and Mail. And in that position, I was able to interview her and do stories on her. I've also interviewed Mary McCartney. (laughs) This is a long story. But I crashed a party uh, (laughs) at which Paul was guest of honor. And Stella was there, of course, with all her very fashionable friends, including Sarah Jessica Parker. And um, (laughs) we did have an eyeball-to-eyeball chat at that time. She had a wonderful publicist, Stefan Jaspar, and he was always putting us in touch with each other for Global Mail stories. And actually, I know she's aware of my book because my publisher told me that her people in England recently ordered a box of books for the shops in um, the boutiques in London. And I know right now we're trying to see if I can come into one of those shops and do a reading. That's great. Yeah, it would be super incredible for me, actually, to do it. In my book, I made sure to mention Stella, especially in the ultimate chapter. And it was quite intentional for me to choose an image of Stella's boutique with Beatles-inspired clothing in the window for my final image, because I wanted to show how Stella, as not just the daughter of a Beatle, but as a, a fashion designer and celebrity in her own right, is pushing Beatles style forward to the next generation. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I have never actually had the opportunity to meet Stella. I have met Mary. I almost met Stella. She was giving a uh, a talk here in town, oh, I guess about uh, just a little bit pre-COVID, and then it ended up getting canceled. They're very nice. They're very down to earth and To me, it's a great credit to the Beatles, all the Beatles' offspring. They're quite decent folk. So I think they raised their own kids quite well. They're they're not swell-headed at all. And then as far as sense of style, I like how she has adapted a lot of 
Linda McCartney style in her own work, which you wouldn't necessarily think of as being high fashion. Linda liked to dress down a lot. Yes, that is actually very true. You wouldn't have called Linda a fashion plate at all. What people really jumped on was that Paul had been traveling in very fashionable circles, of course, and he himself was a dandy, loving clothing. And then he picks up with this American photographer with it had been ungraciously described as a dowdy sense of style, but she just was who she was. And what to me was very interesting is that as soon as Paul became intimately involved with Linda, he starts maybe shedding some of the dandyism of his high Beatles period. And he starts dressing a lot more casually, a lot more true to the self. And maybe that's what you're seeing with Stella and Mary too in her own photography picking up is that mom was authentic. And I think Paul also found that very attractive. Yeah, you mentioned the dandyism. They got that so right in Yellow Submarine. You know, there's a lot of things you can complain <laughs> about the characterization. But Paul, particularly in the very beginning, when he comes out in the suit, he has a little rose on and he's just, oh, hello, fellas. Yes, Paul has a great sense of style. And you just brought up Stella McCartney. And while I was doing my research, I quipped to myself, now I know where Stella got her design chops. Because Paul has been deeply interested in fashion, in image making, how fashion can be a form of image making from the very, very beginning. And we're talking before he even met John. He was very interested in clothing as a form of identity making as well for himself. And he liked trying clothes. He liked looking at what was in. And when the first Matt John and joins the quarrymen, he is instrumental in creating a matching look just for him and John, which signified the beginning of this incredible songwriting relationship that we are all celebrating today. And then when he w is with the Beatles and they're on their way to Hamburg, it was Paul who decided that they should smarten up and have a unified look and wear suits. And he had a neighbor in Liverpool create matching suits for John, George, and himself made of lilac <laughs> fabric. <laughs> and you can sometimes see those pictures if you look hard on Google, see the colorized version. They're, qu they're quite quite appealing, actually, from a uh, we're going to be stars kind of <laughs> point of view. Yeah, unfortunately, they were made in, in a house and they didn't last very long. That's right. They did not last once they started popping those amphetamines in <laughs> Hamburg in front of the gangsters, the prostitutes, and any thug that wanted to ship crates of beer up to the stage and force them to play, play, play. And the whole mech show, you know, from um, the bouncer that was running those clubs, those seedy clubs. And yeah, I, like the suits really took quite the literal beating. And they also, in a way, started to just fade away, sweat away. <laughs> and uh, then you get this uh, real ragtag looking Beatles just as they're cutting their teeth and getting their sound. Right. Well, Stu was included in that look too, wasn't That's he? That's right. That's great that you brought him up because he was extremely instrumental and influential on the Beatles and especially John Lennon, 
you know, John really looked to him for his style cues. There's a whole story there, you know, when they're first in Hamburg. Well, not the first time, but sometime into it, now they've got a really hard sound and it attracts these young Germans who weren't part of the gangster class. They were artistes and actually by definition existentialists. They were taking their influence from Paris, from Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, and they were dressing head to toe in black. And Lenin was the one who nicknamed them the Exes. And their style was very influential on the next look of the Beatles that many people know, that head to toe black leather look after the lilac suits <laughs> faded away. They wore really mad clothes, sort of uh, not very clean, but unusual. Like John had a leather jacket on and Stuart had a, a real proper suit jacket on. They they were so individual, every one of them tried to be stylish in their own little way because they didn't have any money at all. So they made the best of, out what they had. So John had a pair of jeans on which he rolled up, which was very trendy then. And um, Stuart had a very, very pointed shoes. And um, so I've never seen anything like it before. So that was uh, always my dream to take pictures of people with character and a charisma. And there they were, all five of them looked absolutely wonderful. A young woman named Astrid Kirscher had her eye on Stuart. And they soon after became romantically entwined and she starts I guess you'd say playing around with his look she's the one who pushes <laughs> his hair forward she's the one she starts putting him in collarless suit jackets that belong to her mother and it just seemed a bit outrageous but sure as we all know they soon followed suit so that was John and Paul first and then followed with George and Ringo comes a little later, as we all know, uh, Pete Best is drumming at this point. And not part of that look. He did adopt the leather. Yeah, have he to did take the leather. You're absolutely right. And you know what? And he looks pretty good in it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but what he didn't do is wash the brill cream out of his hair. And right. that was maybe a very fatal mistake. <laughs> um, okay, there's not, you know, a definitive reason. I don't even know if Pete himself, who I just saw, by, by the way, on social media, that he just gave some, I think, a series of talks at the Liverpool Beatles Museum. And there was an unveiling. I think he donated the first drum with the Beatles logo on it. Did you see that? That was just this week. Yeah, I, I saw that. Hmm. Yeah, That was pretty uh, interesting. Uh, there was one other thing we wanted to mention news-wise. Yes. That, I mean, it's kind of related with speaking where we're at. Speaking of Hamburg, uh, yeah. Yeah, speaking of Hamburg, Beryl Chang, who can be seen in the Their Name Shall Live Forevermore photographs. Mm -hmm. She passed away just in the last couple weeks. Mm-hmm. People should know she was the uh, wife of the Beatles, what might people might call him the very first uh, manager. It's Alan Williams, yes? Yes, absolutely. And, and he was I the mean, one who was instrumental in getting the Beatles into some beat-up old jalopy and taking them on the ferry boat and getting them at that <laughs> first gig in Hamburg. She is at least partially responsible for hooking them up with Lord Woodbine. And, well, That's right. He had to have played a role in their early look into style. I wonder, you know what? I never saw any reference to it ever. I'd be interested in knowing how 
much they may have jived off each other in terms of style, but I've never seen any documentation on that. Well, we know that he took them down to the steel drum clubs and where they were playing Jamaican music. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of that fashion surely must have slipped over into their mindset. Yeah, I would think it would because that whole um, period is funny. I talked to Robert Orbach, maybe when I'm jumping ahead here, but Orbach was the founder of I Was Lord Kitchener's Valet which was a very influential vintage fashion retailer right around 66 and going into 67. And he also worked for John Stephen on Carnaby Street and sold the Beatles among their first Carnaby Street clothing at the very early period, uh, 62, 63. So he very much remembers the ska bands having a great big influence on the Londoner's style, right? There were these caps that they wore, and there was definitely a crossover. I don't see the Beatles wearing those caps per se. Definitely John Lennon is a big hat wearer, loves hats, always wears them, but he's not necessarily wearing that particular type of cap associated with the Caribbean musicians. Since we're kind of jumping around, one of the things you said early on in your book, which, by the way, I loved a lot lot of great things I didn't even think about. But you say at one point that Paul was impressed by the way John looked and carried himself. And John was impressed the way Paul looked. And you say, you know, without this shared visual attraction, it's unlikely that they would have ever really gotten together. So it's almost like the Beatles are already influencing the Beatles. And it's great. You also start off and make a great point that George was probably more grounded in changing his look than the others. Yep. I deliberately actually tried to open the book with him because young George, yeah, he was very fashion forward. But, (laughs) you know, but he really was moving to his own beat all the time, right? And he'd find things that he thought were cool for him and he'd put it on. And your point, the Beatles inspired each other. They were influenced by each other. They got off on each other. They swapped clothing. I can't tell you how many times that was kind of mind blowing that I'd look at a picture and go, wait a minute, minute. I know that shirt. Oh, that's John's (laughs) shirt, but Paul's wearing it and Ringo's now wearing it. (laughs) Holy crap, what what are they doing? Taking it off each other's backs. But yeah, George would walk in wearing something and the rest would just follow suit. That's very true in the Hamburg period, by the way. Those leathers, it was George who got the leather jacket first. He got cowboy boots from his mom. Yeah, from from Canada. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And then they all end up wearing boots. Yes, that's absolutely true. And it was Astrid who then was encouraging this transformation of theirs and into the black, into the leather and the boots. It's kind of an early iteration of what will become a beetle boot, really, because it elongates that pointed toe, elongates their line. And they were all about having that elongated line, right? Like George is always about a silhouette, too. He is very conscientious of that. Yeah, I mean, George really seemed to develop his sense of style at the Liverpool Institute. I think you can say that John was pretty conventional up until the time he started going to art school. I think that's probably a good observation, yeah. Because, you know, 
when we look at his life, it wasn't as, it's almost like I'm, you can hear I'm stuttering about it because on one hand, I want to say it wasn't as hard, maybe economically as the other three, especially Ringo, right? Who was dead poor. George and Paul, they certainly didn't have his privileges because John did have more of a privileged, more comfortable middle-class upbringing. But the reason I was stuttering there is because maybe on the other hand, people will say, yeah, but he came from a broken home and, you know, he lost his mom and, and then he lost his dear uncle who was Aunt Mimi's husband and he was very attached to him, right? And that's sort of something that I was able to discover that when he goes to the art college, it almost coincides with the death of his mother, but of this uh, father figure in his life. And he actually starts wearing Uncle George's coat and it's oversized. And I kind of identify it as more of a piece of armor. Like he had such grief and John was, as Paul has pointed out to uh, many of us over the years, John had a very soft side. He was not the tough that everybody would think he is, but John wouldn't have wanted to admit that, right? He wanted to pretend he was Mr. Hard, and those are even words right out of his own mouth. So he starts using clothing to construct a kind of identity that's a bit different from who he really was, which was a very sensitive, poetic soul. I don't have time to look it up, but how common were leather ties at that point? You mentioned that one of his favorite things was a very thin leather tie. Was that a common thing? It was common among the mods and... So I think he liked that thin look, that thin, skinny tie look, because it was part of that burgeoning mod movement. It also had a little bit of a taste of the rocker in there. Mm -hmm. And I think this great question, I didn't even (laughs) contemplate it when I was writing the book, but I'm thinking that there's a kind of evolution from the string tie that they're wearing when they're in their John and Paul, especially in that rockabilly period, right? Right. Which is very thin as well and black. And maybe uh, to me that came from the American pop performers that they were into at the time from Chubby Checker and I think Elvis as well and his band. And Maybe there's an evolution there and it emerges with what the British youth culture is doing vis-a-vis the mods, as they say. I imagine this oversized coat and this thin leather tie, it comes off as tough. Mm-hmm. I was able to provide firsthand accounts of people looking at him dressed like this for the first time and how he yeah, was kind of, might sound like a lame word too, like interesting, you know, like he really stood out. There was a whiff of danger about him. It was just a little off, you know, and we, as we know, Lennon, he always was a bit off and he prided himself in being that, what's that line? No one else is in my tree, which meant like, you know, he was always out to carry the metaphor on a limb and uh, deliberately so. Well, and that was really what Paul says about the real first time they met, you know, before the Walton fate, that he'd seen John around, he'd seen John getting on the bus, and and he kind of went up behind him at the line at the fish and chip shop, and he was kind of afraid to talk to him because he thought, this guy, not that he was a Ted, but that he sort of adopted that attitude from his clothes. Exactly. I'd seen him around a couple of times because... I realized later what it was, was my bus route. He would take that bus, but 
he would be going to see his mum, who lived kind of in my area. And then he'd take the bus back up to his auntie, Mimi's. Um, so I'd seen him a couple of times and thought, wow, you know, he's an interesting looking guy. Um, <laughs> you know, and then I once also saw him in a queue for fish and chips. And and I said, oh, that's that guy off the bus. This is, I'm talking to myself. Uh, in my mind, I thought, that's that guy off the bus. Oh, he is pretty cool looking. Yeah, you know, he's a cool guy. And did you know he was a musician already at that point? No, I knew nothing about him except that he looked pretty cool. You know, um, he had long sideboards and uh, a bit of greased back hair and everything, you know. Was that the Teddy Boy kind of look at the time? Yeah, exactly. It was the Teddy Boy look, yeah. Was that your look as well then, or were you more of a rocker? Yeah, I think all of us were trying to do a bit of that at that point, you know. So if you ever noticed anyone who was trying to do it, you thought, oh, yeah, probably get on well with him. And for listeners who don't know what a Ted is, that is just a short form for Teddy Boys. And to explain where Teddy Boys comes from, that's the nickname, Teddy is the nickname for Edward, and it was a fashion subculture of post-war Britain, and they were street thugs, really, and what they were doing was kind of an ironic form of dress to kind of parody their betters, right? Remember, England's is deeply, deeply classed system society, so your betters were dressed in proper Edwardian dress proper Edwardian cuts of clothing, very tapered, tailored jackets. And the Teds or the Teddy Boys, as they say, were parodying this look, but at the same time, they were beating the crap out of people in the streets, right? They were very violent. And so there became a style known as Ted style. And you're absolutely right. John tried to mimic that. He tried to dress like that to give off the illusion that he was really tough and hard and don't mess with me. And that's what, of course, Paul saw in quite a few people who knew him at that time as he was, you know, 17, 18-year-old. And But John says himself later in life, I was just a wannabe. I mean, maybe those aren't his exact words, but he said, I really wasn't a Ted. In fact, he said the real Ted scared him. And if a Ted was coming around the corner, he'd run in the other direction. Well, and that's why years later, when he, they had a fancy dress party for a Magical Mystery Tour, what did John Lennon want to do? I want to do it like the real Ted's. There's no chance he's going to run into one yeah. <laughs> hanging out with the Beatles and various BBC people. Very good recall there. You're absolutely right that they came to that costume party and that's exactly how he dressed. He went back to you know, that time in his life and dressed as a Ted. You're absolutely right. So you know who was the real Ted was Ringo. It was fun to find a quote from him saying it was either that or get the shit kicked out of you, you know? So he did uh, because he was poor, as I said. There was no other way to live in the dangle at that time. That's right. (laughs) It was gang warfare. And it was gang warfare absolutely dressed to the nines. And so Ringo had the whole, not just the wardrobe, but he actually was a member of the gangs. And, uh, you know, but even we just mentioned that AP interview, I mean, he's still so nice, you know. (laughs) You can hardly imagine Ringo beating anybody up, you know, dressed in an Edwardian coat. And actually, the three Beatles, the three original Beatles, John, Paul, and George, 
they were intimidated, actually, all of them, by Ringo when they first laid eyes on him in Hamburg, where he was the drummer for Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. They thought he'd be, uh, you know, somebody to really stay clear of. So that was very interesting. And then again, I have the quotes with that, which you got to know him. Aw, shocks. He's just a great guy. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's always struck me that, you know, once they became famous, it was like, well, I got the rings because my uncle gave me one. And, and I mean, he collected these rings. But where he was from, those rings basically were like brass knuckles. I mean, those rings looked heavy and dangerous. That's the absolute truth. I don't know if Ringo himself used his rings as weaponry, but I know that it's documented, let's say, that the uh, Teddy Boys, that's sure, that's what they did. Their jewelry were <laughs> consisted of brass knuckles and clubs hidden up the sleeve, and they actually had razor blades sewn mm. into the lapels of their jackets so that if you grabbed somebody for a fight, you'd hurt your hands. But nonetheless, it would also be a great way to <laughs> rip out a weapon if you were in a fight, <laughs> in a street fight. Right. And actually, you talked about Stuart Sutcliffe earlier. That's allegedly how he developed the brain hemorrhaging that eventually killed him, is that he was kicked in the head. Like These guys were super violent, and he was kicked in the head several times by a Ted. And John was there at the scene, but it is alleged that John again, was frightened and fled. And Stu took the brunt of it. John did go back and actually rescue Stu. And just for the record, the medical professionals have now said that he had a genetic predisposition. It would have burst eventually anyway. Getting kicked in the head probably didn't help matters any, but he wouldn't have lived to 30. Mm, It's a shame because he was uh, such a talent, everyone says, in the arts especially too. Not on the base, <laughs> as we all know. Well, you know, <laughs> regarding that, Klaus Vorman, who is a world-class bass player, has said he was just fine. So I think some of that was like when he first started, yes, he was not that great. But perhaps by the time he got to Hamburg, he was better. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> We're going to correct that record. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about... Hamburg and then John Lennon in art college, not only was that where he really developed his sense of style, he would go about, you know, Jeff Muhammad, a good friend of his, and Helen mm-hmm. Anderson, you have a great story about that. He would go and just swap clothes with the other people at the art school. You generously said the word swap clothes. I don't think he swapped them. I think he took them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he gave anybody anything from himself. Jeff Muhammad has, there's pictures of him in like some of those big thick sweaters that John used to wear. So maybe s- stealing was more frequent. No, I don't think he would steal. I think it was just the kind of guy that you didn't want to say no to, not because you were intimidated a hundred percent, but some people were even his first wife. She has a recollection of him being a bit intimidating. But I think because, as Helen Anderson said, you just couldn't say no because he was so charming in, in, in his way, right? And he was funny and he kind of just was always in your face and you couldn't deny him. So There are several instances in your book that you mentioned items of clothing of theirs that were stolen and taken. Yes. I, I thought to myself, well, there's karma. <laughs> you know, early on, they took people's stuff and then later on, people took theirs. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's a way of looking at it for sure. 
And some of those pieces have now they kind of are slowly coming to the surface, sometimes at auctions. Paul McCartney is particularly not pleased when that occurs, because if he finds out any piece of his that he didn't legitimately give away, and by the way, he rarely gives away his clothes, shows up at auction. He, I don't know if you've noticed that, that he's very quick to shut it down and get it back. The famous story of that in the last couple of years, although maybe a little bit more than that, is somebody came up with Paul's leather trousers. And it turned out that they were legitimately given away, but they were legitimately given away by Brian Epstein. Ah. <laughs> yeah, you know, he was busy getting them to move on, and yeah. and it was it was hanging there. And Brian said, "No, no, no, he won't need them anymore. Go ahead and take them." And then Paul had second thoughts about that. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So, one of the other bands wanted leather trousers. Okay. They got worn on stage, but the P. McCartney on the inseam never actually got worn out, and he was able to sell them later for a healthy profit. I'm sure. I'm sure. I did touch on that briefly in my book that today, genuine articles of Beatles clothing are like fine art collectibles, right? There's a huge market for them. And they're also not just purchased by collectors or private collectors, and maybe who knows what they do if they just covet them or maybe they even wear them. But museums around the world, right, are collecting Beatles clothing and seeing that as something that's important to look at and preserve for the culture. And you have them in the collections, for instance, of the Victorian Albert in London, I know the Fashion Institute in LA has pieces of Beatles clothing. The Rock Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio, has Beatles clothing. And here in my own city of Toronto, there's a Bata Shoe Museum, actually has a pair of John Lennon's early leather Beatle boots in a vitrine on the second floor. <laughs> you can see it there. In between this suit period and in between starting to go into leathers, the Beatles had another image. They were wearing ski jackets. They were wearing black and red ski jackets and white and black ski jackets with jeans, just plain jeans and black and red ski jackets and white and black ski jackets. It never gets touched upon because nobody photographed it, but this was their image out in Hamburg. And one of the black and red ski jackets is here at the Liverpool Beatles Museum. And just to enforce what I'm saying, because I'm not making this up, do I look like the kind of person that makes something up? No, I don't. Just to enforce it, here's a letter from my mother back out to Pete in Hamburg as a response. And she talks about Paul's brother's been over twice with photos which are on the sh with, to show me. Photos which Paul sent his girlfriend Dot. And it's good to see you all on a photo. Um, she then goes on to say, um, uh, got a glimpse of the new striped jackets. The new striped jackets. Uh, quite a gang. The colour schemes sound good. Red and black. Black and white. And she finishes off by saying, well, showmanship counts for everything in these days. So this is an image that hasn't been in any of the books that you may have read. I've certainly not read about it in the books, but I know about it. I know about a lot of things that haven't been in books. But this was what the Beatles were wearing in Hamburg as their image in Hamburg for a period in Hamburg. And it was never photographed. But you can read about it and you can see it here 
at the Liverpool Beatles Museum on Matthew Street. A lot of that stuff went to the Hard Rock in the ensuing years, and and if you yeah, have a Hard Rock cafe, you, you can find a lot of interesting things. The John Lennon, the Rubber Soul jacket, is at the Hard Rock. Absolutely, you're right. I forgot about that because I studied that photo. I was able to find somebody in London who remembers the circumstances around which John purchased that jacket and where he got it. He didn't buy it in America. He bought it in England at a shop, very prominent boutique shop retailer, Cecil G. And it was quite faded because it was in the window and it had all the sun on it, it the lighting on it, it was dusty and dirty. And But then John wanted it anyway. Could have had any kind of jacket, but he bought that jacket. And it's very interesting that he did buy it. So yes, so I remember really because I got this great story about the origins of the purchase and I really wanted to study it. And yeah, it's in the hard rock and it was very interesting to look at it. One of the things that struck me in reading your book is you talk about the development of their music in Hamburg, but also their look. And so when they mm-hmm. come back to Liverpool to play the literally, it was such an impactful presentation, this leather look with their wild music. Early Beatle fans think of that group as almost a completely different band as to what was eventually sold to the rest of the world. That's 100%. And if you can remember, I know it's kind of passed into Beatles lore and us Beatles fans, we kind of know a bit about this, but just to share with your listeners, which I'm assuming are also real converts to this to this cause of Beatledom, but they were advertised at the time when they came back from Hamburg as direct from Hamburg. And the Beatles themselves have talked about this, and it's been eyewitness accounts of this, that they all thought that meant they were from Germany. Or maybe Mm. they didn't think that in advance, but maybe when they saw them, because they were so exotic. And they were exactly, as you said, this whole other breed from what had just left. And they were completely transformed, not just in their look, which was remarkable. And again, I got an eyewitness account of a guy who was in one of those beat bands in the day, and he talked about how they dressed and how the Beatles dressed was completely anathema to what they were doing. They were dressed more properly in suits, and you had a tie, and you were tidy. But these guys, as he put it, he was kind of wrinkling his nose. They were scruffy, which is basically a you know major understatement. But they were just so different. That's part of what I was trying to recreate in the book, is trying to make us realize like how remarkable it was because a lot of what the Beatles did is now taken for granted, right? Like you would wear leather, no problem. You wear black head to toe, no problem. You wear corduroy even, no problem. But these guys, they were forerunners for a lot of what's in people's closets today. And their sound, it went hand in hand with this new look. Like the hard, hard sound, it was, you called it wild, but it was also yeah, loud, right? That's what people talk about. It was really loud. They were now wearing the high-heeled pointy-toe boots, and they were pound, 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 pound into the stage, right? They had learned that also in Germany. The combination of the look and the sound was electrifying. Well, you compare it to what Roy Storm and the Hurricanes were wearing. You look at those suits, and, and we yeah. now know that those were just like, these hideous, brightly colored suits. And there's a famous story about the big three. They left Brian because they did not want to give up those 
big, ugly things. You know, Brian was trying to tame them down a little bit. And it's like, nope, nope, we don't want to do that. Yeah, very interesting, right? You could look at this early Beatles look. To me, it didn't date exactly, right? It still got a kind of relevance in the culture today, and especially with a lot mm. of fashion designers today yes. riffing on it, okay? But you look at the Hurricanes, yeah, those are laughable costumes, they are of their time. They didn't move with the times, and nobody would be caught dead wearing them except maybe on Halloween, right? <laughs> so, yeah. And that, again, to me, underscores why we love this band. They were inventive. They were bold. They were curious. They were always pushing it forward, always ahead of the curve, and, and they always were trying to do something that was different. And they had impeccable taste. That's the other thing. They had actually impeccable taste. And we know that because we still love their music and we're still, in a way, wearing their clothes <laughs> or variations. Right. Having seen them in their leathers and their glory, that when Brian Epstein came on the scene, he was totally enamored of this band. Mm -hmm. But immediately, to make them bigger, they need to be more refined. You know, I have that in the book, actually, because that's, um, I think, a little bit of the myth, you know, that, oh, Brian Epstein, and even John has contributed to that, but, you know, his own bandmates have corrected that. <laughs> you know, when John <laughs> says, oh, he cleaned us up, he pushed us into the suits, he made me into Beetle John, and all that. But thing is, Brian, yes, really appreciated who they were. He loved the leather, <laughs> maybe a little too much. Uh, you know, <laughs> he, he liked the look a lot. He liked the sound. He liked their personality. Ditto when they meet George Martin. They were funny. They were irreverent. They were witty. They were interesting guys. So he didn't instantly want to change it. I was able to get things in his own words, you know, where he said, I didn't do it quickly, actually. He said, I wanted to do it gradually. And you know that you've got this kind of charming evolution where you can keep the leather pants, but can you drop the jacket and maybe put on a sweater? <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. So you're wearing a sweater. Mm, how about putting a tie with that? Could you try that? Yes, he has his eye on a bigger goal, right? He wants to get them out of yet another basement. Devin McKinney always writes about that, right, in his own book on the Beatles, about they're always in basements, they're always in cellars, they're always kind of <laughs> in a subterranean world. And the black leather, in a way, is part of that subterranean world. And as they start ascending, and eventually they will climb to the pinnacle of pop stardom, you know, the peak of the mountain. And you had to evolve the look gradually along the way. And the Beatles were into it. Make no mistake, they were into it, and so was John Lennon. He didn't take over, as some people do, right, as if he just sort of walked in and said, right, cut your hair like that, put this suit on, any of that. You know, we were already there. We just sort of, people sort of said we were dirty. Well, we weren't dirty. We were just in jeans because we couldn't afford anything else. You know? He got into our suits. You know, he talked us out of the leather suits. It was a bit sort of old hat anyway, all wearing leather gear. It was just stupid. We didn't want to... So appear as a gang of idiots. And Brian suggested that we just sort of wore ordinary suits. So we just got what we thought were quite good suits and just got rid of the leather gear. It was later put around that uh, I betrayed our heavy leather image that we had at the time and I wanted us to get suits. 
But I seem to recall that we uh, all went quite happily. I didn't have to drag anyone there uh, to the tailors. They all went quite happily. They were store-bought. So, you know, we gladly switched into suits, you know, if it was if we were going to get some more money, get some more gigs. Wasn't their first suits, they were basically very dark. You could call it sober, you know, they were sober in that, like, again, not wanting to be dressed in gold lame, uh, right. as, you know, Glory Storm was, or blaring checkers as Chubby Checker was. They studied intently. They always did. You know that, right? They always did right up until the end. They were always studying the quote-unquote competition because they were going to be different. They were going to be, if not one better, ten better. So they knew what the competition was wearing, and they were going to be opposite. So they did not go flash. So to your point, yeah, they went dark. They went a bit, a bit sober. But nonetheless, there was style in there. They were already looking abroad to the continent, the continent, you know, being Europe. They were looking at the influence from the Nouvelle Vague cinema, the Dolce Vita cinema of Fellini. This is where you were getting a lot of your style influences. Because remember, it wasn't like today. It's like you couldn't open up your phone or anything and suddenly get a plethora of images and go, yeah, I like that, I like that, I like that. You were having to get it from the cinema. Maybe you'd get one shot, uh, you know, picture or an image on an LP cover, right? TV wasn't as ubiquitous and it wasn't in color. And there was only starting very slowly. And that was also interesting about the Beatles story and fashion is that as they're coming of age, so too is an interest in menswear. It starts to become a thing. Prior to that, it wasn't, right? So again, you didn't have a lot of outside influences, but the Beatles were looking and they liked the European sensibility. And remember in Hamburg, the Exes, France, like it's always there. It's kind of an undercurrent as well. They're very influenced by Americana. They're American idols from the music. And then also being in Liverpool, that was very important because being in a port city, they were among the first recipients in the UK of American clothing because it was coming through. And that's the denim that we were kind of referencing at the very start. It's always there. But you asked about the suits. I'm kind of riffing here on the European influences because they're going for a continental style. They're going again for something that's not typically British. It has an edge. It's got a sophistication. You might even say it's a bit more cosmopolitan than what others are wearing at that time. And again, that starts to distinguish them from the crowd. I mean, can you imagine what that crowd, the fan club crowd at the Cavern, you know, we're doing the first set. Okay, we're in our leathers. This is the band, you know. Then they go backstage, they change clothes, and it's the Beatles that come out on the, the second set in the suits and everything. It's like, what must they have thought? I loved writing about that. And again, I was lucky to find, not necessarily that people spoke to me, but some, um, sadly people have passed away. As you just mentioned about Beryl, you know, people are aging. But I was able to find evidence of people who saw them and how it was like, what? You know, was such a shock for them. They were so used to their Beatles in a certain way. But they did say uh, quite a lot of these are young ladies. They quite liked them. They thought they were, oh, our Beatles are looking quite smart. (laughs) By the way, they had the black turtlenecks too, right? And then the kids started imitating it. And other bands almost instantly start 
imitating them as well because it was very eye-catching. Right. And the thing that you really put across in the book is, is that, you know, the story as it's come down was that Epstein kind of like, well, this is what you need to do. I had no idea how involved they were. Yeah, it's not so revealing, even for me, right? Because like, we've all grown up. Yeah, it was so incredible how involved they were in their look. They took yeah. total charge of it. Well, that then takes us to Dougie Millings. Uh, mm. I wasn't aware that he was not just their primary tailor. He was pretty much their only tailor for two and a half, three years. And add the figure, more than five Hundred, <laughs> right? That's an astonishing yeah. number. When there's four guys, do like I can't even do that math. Like, how many suits was that? Five hundred looks, five hundred distinctive, creative, tailored looks from them, and that is quite astonishing. Yeah. Well, at least he gets a cameo in Hard Day's Night. <laughs> yeah, and more than that, I think now he, his son Gordon Millings is still with us. Again, I had great privilege to interview him for the book. And he's kind of coming out a little bit more in just in recent years with some of his father's, maybe let's call it legacy. He's got some of the original suits in his possession. He's got his dad's patterns. And he has some good memories of what actually went on, i.e., to your point, it was Paul McCartney who comes in and brainstorms with Dougie Millings about how the Beatles should look and how they should be distinctive. And a voila, we come up with the collarless suit, which is yet another iconic Beatles look. And that was not Epstein saying you to wear that. That wasn't Dougie Millings saying you to wear that. That was the Beatles themselves saying, this is what we want to wear. Can you make it for us? You mentioned that the, the, the relationship basically ended at Patty's urging. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did it end badly? That's something that I didn't explore with Gordon Millings. I don't think there was a lot of antipathy whatsoever. I think it was just that, hey, it's fashion. By the way, we're talking about fashion and the fashion changed. And then Dougie maybe wasn't as fashionable for them. And just like the music was changing. And so Patty, she was a fashion model and she was very plugged in to the new and happening scene. And she was very good friends with a leading British fashion designer of the day, Ozzy Clark, who I was quite delighted to find out because I didn't know that until I did this research for this book, was a fellow Liverpudlian. The Beatles got on quite well with him as well. So I think once they entered that circle, and they were growing in sophistication too, right? So they wanted to branch out. They wanted to be involved with some of these other new creatives that were coming up at the same time as they. They were so influential in the world at that point. I'm sure they were being pursued by any number of designers. The Beatles were always their own men. They didn't have stylists. They didn't have people putting them in clothes. They couldn't even do that if they wanted to. So they didn't want to be seen selling out. So that's why I think if any designers were trying to trace chase them down, they would have just given them the boot. <laughs> they wouldn't have allowed them in. There is one outfit, the the help, the 65 stage suits. I know you said that they were a Dougie Millings creation. That was really kind of different than anything else either before or after. It's kind of what they attempted in Pepper, but not really. Yeah, those 65 suits, maybe we would call them the last gasp of Dougie Millings because after that tour, he doesn't 
create their looks for them anymore. But he kind of goes out with a bang, does he not? I mean, those Nehru collar Shea Stadium jackets, what everybody now calls them, the Shea Stadium jackets, I mean, those were knockouts and people imitated them. You've got a designer like Hedy Slamine for Dior, YSL Om today absolutely recreating that collar and shoulder militaristic epaulette shoulder for his own fashions. So it had a great influence, but you're right. It was absolutely different from what they had worn before. And I think it might've been just straddling you know, these two worlds of mod and going into what would become that military trend look that we all see on Sgt. Pepper. Well, it's funny that, you know, that was 1965. I got one in 1968 and still thought I was on the cutting edge of fashion (laughs) (laughs) three years later. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you were. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. You look at the Beatle bands, they all have to do a a Sullivan suit. They all have to do a Shea Stadium. They all have to do a Pepper. And then they all usually have to do like a a White Album slash Abbey Road type set of costumes. And, And that's how they view the whole Beatles looks. Yeah, those are some, maybe you could call them some of the highlights, but there's lots of really wonderful things in between that I like. The 66 tour clothes were quite a departure with their bright, colorful look. That came from one of the newest boutiques on the block, and the new block for fashion in London was King's Road. And this was a boutique called Hung on You, and it was just the last word at that time in the new direction of fashion, which was now going against mod, going against that, you might almost call it that lean, clean silhouette that had been distinctly Beatles-esque, actually, from early uh, iteration through the Dougie Millings time through to 65. And now it's become a bit what we would call today vintage-inspired, and it's going back to a little bit more romantic lines. They're more flowing lines, colors, and also much more um, international because these influences are starting to come in what you'll see in the hippie period, the Afghanistan, India, China, even the Mao jackets. You're getting just a lot of Art Nouveau influences because I found out that part of the movement there was being led by young aristos, aristocrats like Michael Rainey, who was the proprietor of Hung On You, and he was at the time married to Jane Ormsby Gore, also known as Lady Jane. The Stones immortalize her in song. What they are doing, and it was written up in Vogue at the time, they're going to the family estates in the countryside and they're ransacking the trunks and they're coming up with these old-ish fashions and they're mixing it with some of the trinkets and objets that they're getting on their jet-set lifestyle trips to Morocco and other far-flung places. So you get this whole melange completely different than what had just been the fashion. And Hung On You became the epicenter of this kind of new way. And then the Beatles plug into that quite quickly. And they, for their new tour, they asked Michael Rainey to create for them new distinctive looks for that world tour. It's very interesting. The 66 tour, that's clothes which they would go back to throughout the end of their career as Beatles. 
Yes, very much so. In fact, it's really interesting for me to look at some of the photos, uh, multicolored shirt, something from Hang On You that they wear on the 66 tour. You see it with both the pinstripe and the bottle green that they wear. Ringo's wearing that shirt in the Get Back film. Like I can see it and he's wearing it in I Am The Walrus and the Beatles never got rid of the clothes that they really loved and they wore them over and over again. And yes, they are returning to it all the time because they really enjoyed the color and how different it was. I like your description. They were starting to be a little bit less the four-headed monster, but they were still dressing as if they were pulling clothes out of the same dresser drawer. I love that description. Oh, thank you. Yeah, because that's what I mean. Like, I've heard lots of people, you know, they, someone just said it to me the other day. Oh, there's the White Album, four distinct portraits, four different guys. They've gone their own way. And I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> you know, that's just a photo session, you know, because there's lots of other evidence. Like the next day, they, again, they're swapping each other's clothes. They're wearing each other's clothes or variations on the theme. And you can even go right through to the Abbey Road cover, that photo shoot, right? There are four distinctive looks, but... Uh, Ringo, Paul, and John are all wearing clothes by the exact same designer. And that was totally by chance. They had a shared sensibility. So it's quite uncanny when you especially you see it in the clothing. And, and they tended to, to shop in the same places. I mean, Shopped in the same places, absolutely, because yeah. they enjoyed each other so much. They trusted each other's taste. You opened up talking about that AP interview, right? You get even... Ringo today talking about it, how tight they were. He talked about the happiest times of his life. Like, yeah, we were four people and yeah, we could have ups and downs, but we had more ups than we had downs. <laughs> and right. They really influenced each other. Yeah. They were a very tight clique. I think unique to the world, you know. There were two things that I, I thought you mentioned in the book that George credits Corduroy as being the reason they got the MBE, saving that industry. And it also struck me that, you know, Help, which was not a Beatles creation, per se, written mm -hmm. by someone else, that film influenced George's interest in Indian music. Oh, yeah. And then the Nehru fashions mm -hmm. came yeah. out of that. Absolutely. That became a huge thing because oh, the yeah. Beatles were yeah. in Yeah, yeah. That East meets West aesthetic was kind right. of percolating in London. And, I, and again, that was something that was part of my research. And I'm hoping I brought that to the fore, that Richard Lester, the director of Help and, of course, of A Hard Day's Night and other films, he's an American. He's over in Britain. He's got a pretty good sense of what's going on on the scene. And I have a description of him that he was sending the film's costume designer. He was sent around a car to take her. Mm -hmm. And they were both going together to Carnaby Street, which was starting to lose a little bit of its cachet. By the way, it was starting to fade just then. And those other boutiques I mentioned on King's Road and elsewhere were starting to predominate. But what's what I just mentioned about the Michael Rainey hung on you thing, where you were starting to get the aristocrats, first of all, being able to afford to travel to different places, bringing those influences back with them into the UK. And it starts to become part of the boutique culture, imported clothing from other countries. So in a way, that was there in the culture at the time. 
I thought that was quite fascinating that Richard Lester must have been attuned to that for sure. And then in a way, you start thinking, oh, was the entire film a kind of homage to this fashionable moment in the zeitgeist? Because it gave you a great excuse (laughs) to show off some of these India-inspired clothing. And then you had the showcase of the music, of course. And it had an enormous influence, right? Not just on the Nehru collars and beaded collars that we see in this film, but there's, again, very much that presence of corduroy, which is very interesting. That is another Dougie Millings, almost fully designed um, film, save for the pieces that were purchased from the boutiques and from Carnaby Street. You mentioned the boots. Yeah, that was a style innovation. And that was very much a George thing. I think he long wanted to have shoes made from corduroy. And probably that's what gave Dougie Millings the idea. So he's got matching beetle boots in corduroy fabric to the ensemble that, you know, worn above the ankle. Right. Uh, and it's a kind of faux military look, right? And again, this is the era. It's going away from those sleek, lean, Mm -hmm. modular fashions from the continent. And it's going back to like a kind of nostalgia in fashion. And it's going to be even more pronounced in the following year or two years with, say, when you see the Sgt. Pepper regalia, right? Because that was them, the Beatles, making a comment on that military trend that was happening because people were starting to look back at days of empire and there were all these warehouses in Britain filled with old army uniforms and then people started to sell it off, you know, at flea markets and then it became a fashion. But anybody knows about fashion, right? It does. It swings. It goes from one end to the other. So you went from lean, mean machine to something quite old (laughs) and romantic in a way. Right. Uh, It's interesting. I mean, since we're talking about influencer beyond the issue of the clothes, we were talking about Hard Day's Night. John and Paul are both quoted as saying that they talked with Richard Lester and that, you know, they wanted the French New Wave, the whole Jules at Jim Mm -hmm. attitude to go into that film. Right. So that goes back again to especially John Lennon. I think, you know, he was a real Francophile and he had his eye on the French and the French fashion. And even those colorless suits, we didn't maybe give the provenance there, but they weren't by Pierre Cardin, but they were inspired by Pierre Cardin, had a very similar colorless jacket in 1960. And then when the Beatles go in 62, and it was really Paul leading the charge there, as I mentioned, they remembered that colorless look, and then they did their own variation on it. But yes, to the point that they're looking at Paris a lot, they're looking at France a lot. There was something that I found quite revealing, and I'd never seen it written about before. John had approached a French designer in Paris, Ted Lapidus, to open up a new Beatles fashion boutique, and it would have been in the French capital. And the discussions were taking place in 68, you know, and into 69. That never materialized, but John then commissioned Ted Lapidus 
to create for him bespoke white leather satchel or bags for these the whole erotic, bag one thing. Yeah, exactly. For the erotic um, drawings he was making of Yoko at the time. Those are rare collector's items, by the way, if anybody ever finds one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that Jules Jim that whole Paris, the whole continental influence, it's right there from the beginning of the Beatles fashion story right to the end. Bag One is an artwork portfolio created by John. And inside Bag One are 14 drawings of John and Yoko's honeymoon, beddings for peace and wedding ceremony. And Bag One actually became an exhibition of lithographs at London Arts Gallery in 1970. And some of the lithographs contain quite erotic, but I think really beautiful and intimate imagery. Some of this imagery was seen as quite controversial at the time. And actually just a day later, the gallery was raided by the police and they confiscated eight of the 14 lithographs on the grounds of indecency. Luckily, John wasn't prosecuted under the Obscene Publications Act. And this was really in case it had a knock-on effect of censorship for other artists and artworks that contained nude figures. He was, however, prosecuted under the Metropolitan Police Act. And this made it an offence to distribute indecent material in a public thoroughfare. And it actually went to court. But luckily, again, the magistrate decided to dismiss the case because he found that the London Arts Gallery wasn't a public thoroughfare. Those lithos were available well into the 80s for like 10 or $15 a piece. It's like, oh, Were they really? Because if only we could go back and, and pick some of those up. There's a gallery here in Toronto, the Liss, L-I-S-S, gallery. And the gallerist, Brian List, told me he has a collection of them, by the way. So that might be something to inquire about. Hmm. Uh, You had mentioned as the band was kind of coming to its end, their dress style would also reflect that they wanted to go back to their own greatest hits. One of the things that you really didn't mention which has always amazed me is that paul went back to one of his quarrymen shirts and wore that around for a little while during the get back sessions the white cowboy shirt with the black shoulders on it it's like wait a minute we know that shirt (laughs) yeah and paul's also going back to ted style he's wearing brightly colored socks (laughs) during this period paul liked looking back at his clothes keeping his clothes as they say don't ever try to sell a Paul piece of clothing that he didn't say you could sell because he is very, very attached to his clothing. has a lot of meaning for him. And he still wears it. He bought out that Hard Day's Night tuxedo not yeah, too long ago. That's right. Good memory. I, I, exactly. I remember looking at it and going, oh, my goodness. It's almost evergreen, right? And I guess kept himself slim that he could still wear it. <laughs> but there's another thing I wanted to just bring up. There is a favorite Paul shirt. You probably have seen it. Obviously, you've seen it if you've looked at pictures of him. It's kind of stars and it's kind of what today we call ombre, <laughs> brighter purple and mauve tones, and then it starts fading, but it's stars. There's pictures of him when Mary is first born, he's wearing it. It was created by a designer in London called Paul Reeves. And it's funny, he told me that he had a chance to meet Stella McCartney. They were having dinner through a mutual friend and it got to the point, so what do you do then type of thing? It's like, oh, I, because now he sells antiques. And he said, oh, I used to be a fashion designer. Or I did. Oh yeah, like what? And then he said, well, actually your dad bought a couple of my 
pieces. And then he mentioned the shirt. And she said, no, that's his favorite <laughs> shirt. And it's from the Beatles time. And she said, he won't let me borrow it. <laughs> so it was something that made you also to kind of underscore that the Beatles really loved their clothes and they would wear them over and over, maybe at different periods of their life, like you just mentioned about the Quarryman shirt. Looking through some of the notes I took as I was reading the book, you know, and, and there are various designers named, and you've named a few, and Barry Quant and, and all that. Then there comes this period of time when it's hung on you and granny takes a trip and dandy fashions and i was lord kitchener's valet it's like they went out and started doing their own shopping basically and because they were shopping in the same places there was a similarity but they were beginning to really look individual yes that becomes more pronounced as they stop touring together because there was no more obligation to wear or have suits that were identical for the stage. But at the same time, yeah, they are shopping in the same places. They are inspired by each other's look. They grow their hair the same. They start growing <laughs> mustaches, facial hair. Even though there's distinctive and individualistic elements among them. Nonetheless, I think they still cleave to an identity as Beatles. From a 50-year perspective or more, we have this view of them. I wonder how much they were aware at the time of how similar they were or symbiotic they were as they were breaking apart. They still had that look. None of them were wearing the same outfit on Abbey Road, but there's a look. Yep. That's for sure. And then, you know, even George, if you want to think of him on that cover as the outlier, like he's now more inspired by what he's <laughs> listening to, right? Band, he's right. playing with Bonnie and Delaney. He's got, I mean, all of them knew Dylan, but he's now at this time really has a very strong personal and artistic relationship with Dylan. So I think wearing the jeans and head to toe like that is, I think, a reflection of just his musical tastes are changing, he's changing. But then all the guys start doing something similar, right? If you look, maybe the, the sessions that take place right after that one photo session, they are similarly following George's lead and they're wearing denim. Look at John when he meets Yoko and he goes on top of the pops for the first time, you know, since the Beatles were yes. there, he's wearing head to toe denim just like george in a way it's a variation well, i mean you right? go back to the white album photos that uh, you know yes, john is, that's is right. all in the denim there there so. you go here you go yeah and it starts so as i said so and actually that would predate in a way george wearing that but yeah they inspire each other and i think yeah it was a good statement to make about were they aware of the symbiosis i think so i mean even you get like kind of wry comments from yoko you know later on it's like the in-laws and that, <laughs> you know, you marry into this thing, like it's bigger than you. And Patty Boyd has even said that right from the start, you knew that they were like their own tribe with their own language. They were so in sync. Yeah. All right. We haven't gotten through half of the things we want to talk about, but let's sort of close out with John and Yoko and, you know, Lennon into the 70s. You know, Lennon had so many iconic looks. He made Bob Gruen's T-shirt into just such an iconic thing that you yeah. see it on 
every street corner in New York City when you walk down. Absolutely. I just was there. It's true. And all the buttons when you walk in, you know, (laughs) to Central Park there, there's this whole display and posters. Yeah, you're right. And then even, you know, 1980, when John was so happy to get his school tie back. Mm-hmm. And, but I mean, you know, the glasses and the look that he and Yoko had together, that was very contemporary in a lot of ways. That's what blows me away. When you look at them, it feels absolutely current and it hasn't dated at all, just like the music. You know, it's still very relevant. And it just shows that there was a freshness about what they were doing. Again, I've used that word, and sorry if it's overused, but there was an authenticity about them too. I think that that's why they, uh, the Beatles, as style leaders, were so hugely influential because they were not phonies. They were the real deal. And what they wore is what they genuinely liked and what they just wanted to wear as a reflection of their personalities of their cohesion as a band and all their you know sensibilities as rock artists they were always pushing the envelope they wanted to be innovative and creative and take everything to a new level and they greatly succeeded not just in their music but in the clothing choices they made they were distinctly their own agreed All right, so your book is Fashing the Beatles, The Looks That Shook the World. Deirdre Kelly, thank you very much for joining us. Like I say, we have to have you back because I've got pages and pages pages of questions and we got to do a Paul show. (laughs) I could talk for a whole hour about Paul McCartney and his sweaters. I was going to say, only if you bring me back to talk about the sweaters and the vests (laughs) and the granny square crochet <laughs> yeah, all the way from 1968, you know, the whole Magical Mystery Tour, all the way through the 80s when Paul was the man in the dad sweaters. Right. Yeah, that's a new trend as well. And you know, sweaters for men becomes a major early 70s trend. Yeah, that's I want to say because of Paul, with Clint Eastwood, the new sexy guy in fashion spreads wearing kind of Paul esque sweaters. So there you go. <laughs> We left so much not covered that it was going to force everyone to go out and buy the book because I highly recommend it. It's really oh, good. Oh, I'm so thrilled. Thank you so much. Very kind of you. <laughs> it's currently the number one best-selling Beatles book on Amazon. I mean, that will shift. And of course, the Mal Evans book, as we all know, is going to be out in oh, about six weeks' time. And that's going to blow us all away for... Yeah, and that's uh, one I'm hotly anticipating. So yes, I'm <laughs> looking forward to reading all about that. So buy it now. (laughs) And we will have Ken Womack with us a little bit closer to the release of the book. Wonderful. I'll be tuning in. Any last thoughts for now? We both have lots more things to talk about, and we will real soon. Yes, let's save it for the next conversation. I very much look forward to it. All right. All right. Talk to you all next week. Thank you. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
I want to talk Beatles fashion. This is when the British invasion happened, right, yeah, Kyle? Yeah, that's right. And we're going to do a little Susie Wall here, you guys. But I really have to admire the way that style has changed. It hasn't changed, really, from like 1963, 1964, when the Beatles really uh, invaded North America. I mean, it, we kind of wear these things today, don't we? Except for this one right here. I would have just asked Ringo, who killed the couch mate? Oh, that was Australian. That was way off. Back to Beatles fashion. Uh, this is my Susie Wall now. This is uh, uh, now the mid-60s when the Beatles were in their heyday with uh, just, just raising the American awareness of how great the British invasion was. Except for, I didn't realize this was uh, for a man. This is the best part about when we, when we go through all the fashion and then yeah. you see these ones. And this is where everything gets a little crazy. Okay. Psych psychedelic would be the word. Yeah, baby. And especially this one right here. Looks like you could it was that. right off the Austin Powers The Spy Who Shagged Me. You but, can do that. But right now, we have to uh, throw it back to Dina. Beatles fashion, Dina. I tell you one thing. There's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but the scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 